Windmill 347 to Trap 1. How do you read me? Over. Welcome to the Trap 1 Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Simon. And I'm Bryn. Thank you very much for joining me for this Time Lord Victorious episode. Uh, today we're going to talk about The Night, The Fool and The Dead by Steve Cole. Uh, so just a warning, as usual, we'll be discussing every detail of this one, so there will be spoilers ahead. Uh, Bryn, I've been following your blog on uh, that you've been covering all the elements of the Time Lord Victorious so far. Um, how are you finding that experience? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to look at, and um, I think... For me, the Time Lord Victorious thing, it interested me, but I suspect that if I had have been reading and, and listening to it without doing this blog, it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been pursuing all the parts of it, particularly um, the comics. So um, I think just, and it's my first experience doing this sort of, you know, reviews for a lot of reviews in a short space of time. And so I think that's really, it's made it more interesting for me, yeah. Cool, yeah, I, I, so it feels like we're getting another series this year, although um, Series 12 doesn't feel like it was this year with, the, with everything that's happened since then. Um, it, it, it really doesn't. Yeah. I keep reminding myself that it was actually 2020. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean because there's this mass of content at the moment, and unlike, obviously, there's always loads of big finished stuff going on in the background, but this sort of feels more, more heavily promoted. So certainly on, on Twitter, it suddenly feels like there's a lot more Doctor Who stuff going on than there usually is in the sort of off-season. As we'll see, the, the way that the different stories uh, interconnect with each other as well. Yeah, I think it's really the first time that they've done anything so interconnected across so many different um, sort of media, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And at, at the start, I wasn't quite sure how sort of you know, vague or distinct these connections would be. Certainly the first few things I read, it kind of seemed like they were doing almost independent stories that happened to personally. But then now we've got sort of kind of, well, we finished the second month of it. There's been a few things that have come along where you've been like, oh, okay, this is very, very connected in places. Yeah, there's a lot of talk early on, wasn't there, about how it could be enjoyed as standalone stories, um, but also it all interconnects. Um, so it'd be interesting, uh, yeah, what we think about this, this book, The Night, the Fool and the Dead, as, as to how successful that is in, in being a standalone story. Well, I guess it isn't really a standalone story if you're just looking at the book. It's, it's part one of, <laughs> of a two-book uh, story, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I think that is the feeling I got f- from it, that, yes, it stands alone from the other elements of Tunnel of Two's narrative, but really it, it is a part one, and you kind of... If you read this and own, never read the resolution of a cliffhanger, I think it would feel a bit a bit odd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like um, a big finish. Been doing all these freebies recently, haven't they? Where you, you download it and then you sort of listen to like a first part of a story and then you're hooked. And uh, obviously, that's the plan. Is that they, then you go in uh, and buy the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, someone's thought through their business yes. model there, haven't yeah. they? <laughs> Yeah, so that, that, that's the reason why I always avoid listening to um, part ones that are released if I can't get the full story, because I just know mm-hmm. otherwise I'm going to be disappointed. Definitely. Uh, so I've got a physical copy of the book. Um, it's, it's the same sort of format as the two recent Eric Sayward novelizations. Um, sort of quite a small hardback with a dust jacket. So just when you put it on your shelf with all the other Doctor Who books, like very few of them ever match, do they? <laughs> so it's... Uh, this is another one that's um, that's like kind of yeah, just just doesn't really kind of slot in easily. Uh, but it's interesting. They, yeah. The spine says the Time Lord Victorious rather than the name of this book. Yeah, well, I had yeah. that conversation with someone on tw- someone on Twitter, and sort of, well, in effect, it means that presumably if the second one is the same, but when you put them on the shelf next to each other, they look like they've got they're the same book, but maybe with different coloured spines. Which I think for selling in bookshops is. A bit weird, even if um, when you have it on your own shelf, you're gonna know. But yeah, definitely, it's an interesting yeah. choice. Yeah, that's it. In Waterstones, you're yeah. just gonna um, like the casual um, kind of glance. You're gonna think it's just two different covers of the same book or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought maybe they just couldn't fit the night, the fool, and the dead on the spine. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that is it. But I suppose they could fit that on if they didn't have Time Lord Victorious, mm-hmm. but obviously they're pushing the Time Lord Victorious thing, so they want to have that on the spine, and if there's not space for both. Yeah, or they could have put a number on. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Time Lord Victorious uh, Part One or something. Yeah. So it's a pretty good uh, jumping on point, um, and and from the point of view of of Tenth Doctor fans, it picks up um, immediately after the Waters of Mars, doesn't it? Like the the events of the climax of that story is still ringing in the Doctor's ears, keeps sort of having flashbacks to it, um, and it seems like his experience uh, there kind of really informs his actions and his thoughts on this one. Yeah, I did like that grounding in the sort of immediate aftermath of that story. I think particularly the first moment when Brian the Ood shows up and the Doctor's initial reaction is, wait, an Ood, because he's literally just had that experience with Ood Sigma showing up and telling him to go to his death, in effect. And so it's, I think that was a nice beat where obviously the writers thought about the context that the Doctor's coming from and gone, what's his first thought going to be in this situation? Absolutely. Uh, so the Doctor has travelled to the dark times uh, when the universe is much younger and smaller. Uh, it describes the, the galaxies being much closer together. Um, and uh, you know, what we learn is that, that death is very uncommon, that people don't die of old age. There's, there's, uh, he arrives on the planet Andalia where only like 50 people have ever died and everyone's thousands of years old. Um, I felt like it was quite well drawn um, in quite a short uh, space of time in, in, in the book. That it was quite idyllic, um, quite an egalitarian society. Um, but then you've got the, these, these people who are very complacent about death. It felt like they were sort of climate change deniers or anti-maskers. Um, they were <laughs> just like, nah, it'll never happen to us. Um, until obviously the... Uh, well, first of all, they, they get um, somebody turn up, their spaceship turns up, tries to sell them the life shroud, which will protect them from the Katura. And obviously, mm-hmm. the, the Katura themselves um, arrive as well. Uh, so, have you, you guys um, dipped into any of the Time Lord Victoria stuff? I know you have been for your blog. They the obviously appeared in the, um, the Big Finish short trips. Yeah, I think obviously that. The second of the two big finish short trips, um, Lesser Evils, is the story before you've gone into the most depth with the Katuru. And, um, but pr- prior to this um, novel, because this novel definitely, um, I mean, I think it was released before those short trips by Reddit After. And um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff, and it's, it's much more about like their, like their plan and stuff and where it's coming from, the idea that they've got this sort of destiny and these rules that they're trying to uphold um like because really in terms of what their mo is i think we've had that from the start with sort of synopsis that have been released you know the idea that they go to a planet and do this and we, we've seen that time and again and we see it you know how it goes in the prologue of this and a few times throughout the book and as well as that there was a newsletter short story which again was you know they arrive on a planet and inflict death on it so it was interesting to see that play out in much more detail here and the sort of the consequences of it on individuals obviously you've got the child, I think it's Estenay, who who features in the prologue and then becomes a character throughout this who actually get to see much more of the aftermath of their actions. Have you sampled much of the other Time Lord Victoria stuff yet, Simon? Um, this is um, my first dip in other than the DWM comic strip, which is sort of the prologue, isn't it, to it all? So, yeah, this is all new to me. So I'm finding out from what you've said what some of more of the background really. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Everyone, um, the, everyone's come to it from from different starting points as well to uh, to, to get different perspectives on it. Because um, the other thing, of course, Brian the Ude in this was introduced in the the Big Finish story. He kills me, he kills me not, and it's touched on briefly here, isn't it? I thought it was quite interesting that. Um, he tells the doctor, "Yeah, this I ended up in the dark times via the TARDIS." Because at the end of "He kills me, he kills me not," basically does a salamander and, and falls out of the TARDIS uh, mm. into the time vortex, and this is where he's ended up. Um, but the doctor can't remember him, so that's uh, it's quite an interesting. He speaks of, of something that's going to happen, either the maybe the the, the way that the the, uh, the timelines change from his actions here, or Sometimes the sort of the idea is there's a multi-doctor event that he can't remember as well, isn't there? Yeah, I think I think the dynamic of Brian already sort of knowing the Doctor, albeit a different body, and the Doctor not knowing makes it really interesting here. And 
it is interesting how it differs from the audio because obviously in the audio drama brian and the doctor are in a much more sort of confrontational situation whereas here they're getting on and again in terms of those um connections um the the third interlude which has the eighth doctor and brian viewed it was when i'd listened to the audio drama which i actually did earlier today and then went back to because i was a bit confused when hopefully and actually went back and realized it was literally in the middle of that audio drama like you know so the third interlude from his book could fit between two scenes in that audio drama which was really like a, a surprise and and it's very when you go back and read it like that, it makes a lot more sense because obviously there's that, you know, there's this, he talks about the, the woman who's sleeping in the cave with them and stuff. And so it's this fragment of a whole story, which, you know, for people who've read the novel and not heard the audio drama, they'll just go, well, <laughs> this is an interesting adventure I'm never going to see, but it's there. Ah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I thought that'd be the most confusing uh, part of the book for anybody that was that was coming to Time Lord Victorious with this. Did that? What did you think of that, Simon? I I was confused about the point of it all <laughs> for a little <laughs> while. So particularly because um, I really liked them all, and I liked the way the Doctor's attitude towards death changed through all the stories, particularly. Um, sort of very much from the first one where it as always it's Barbara who is humanizing <laughs> him and introducing him to all these concepts and then sort of gradually over time he I really like the way that he's taken it as his story and he's telling it to people and he's forgotten where he's got it from and yeah just the way the doctors changed over the years that was a really good contrast and I think this is all to contrast to the portrayal of the 10th doctor in this story like he's forgotten the message that he was told when he was he was young. Yeah. Yeah, I think those interludes really are like one of the highlights of the novel mm-hmm. for me. And like obviously the first one fits in very directly into An Unearthly Child. Um and that third one then, when you've heard your job reviews, fits in very directly. I'm not sure exactly where the second interlude fits in, but um I'd be interested to see if that ties into something that happens in the DWM comics or something, because um, but the situation seems less clear, so I, I don't know yet. Yeah, so the middle one is is the ninth Doctor uh, coming into Rose's bedroom. That's one for the shippers there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, to tell a part of the story, um, and it's uh, it's it's a nice little story as well because they say it's a Brothers Grimm story, um, which I, I'm not that familiar with them, but I've no reason to doubt it. I suppose um, about. Uh, a tailor who asks death to be the godfather to his youngest son um, and uh, who beco- then becomes a doctor who uh, death tips them off who's going to live and who's going to die as to whether death is standing at the foot of the bed or the uh, the top of the bed um, who only the um, only the doctor can see and at different points it seems like death is the doctor or the doctor is the doctor in the story um, but by the end of it, it does seem like he hasn't really taken the right message from it. Like the message is, you can't cheat death. But the the message the doctor takes is, you can cheat death, but you've just got to keep running and, and stay far enough ahead of the consequences. Um, which uh, which I thought was interesting ties really well into the um, the narrative of this story. Yeah, and it it was, it was nice to hear, like, because effectively he's the same story is being told three times and obviously the first time when we get the start of it and the third time sort of like, but it kind of, there is some overlap and how it's told differently, you know, like, like you would tell a sort of traditional fairy tale. And, you know, I think Doctor Who in, in recent years seems to have a bit of a, a Brothers Grimm obsession. Obviously there's the, the bit in Heaven Sent, you know, quite noticeably the, the Shepherd's Boy story, but then there's also an Eighth Doctor audio. I think it's in Ravenous Free, there's one which features the brothers Grimm and makes quite a lot of reference to there. It's an interesting sort of ground for Doctor Who stories to be drawing on. I think these sort of dark fairy tales, it kind of it fits quite well with what Doctor Who is, I think. Yeah, definitely. We see the Katura um in, in much more detail and, and, and doing a lot more than we have in, in the other releases so far. Uh even to the extent of, of seeing their homeworld, um, where they've uh, they've got the design which is uh which is interesting. So they, 
as as we've probably alluded to, they determine the lifespan of of every species uh, in the universe. Um, so we get this really creepy idea. Sometimes they visit a planet, so that's what we've seen in uh, the lesser evils and, and and a couple of other stories. Um, but they also have emissaries who go from different species to to speak to them. Um, I guess to try and beg for uh, for a long lifespan. Um, as these emissaries then they basically are judged given the lifespan for their species, but become these weird sort of zombie revenants who uh, endlessly repeat uh, these sort of uh, this code, which is the time and the coordinates of their planet as to when when they're going to be judged. Um, that was I thought that was uh, that was a pretty creepy idea. Um, and you get these two big set pieces. There's, there's one on the planet there where they're being chased down by all these zombie remnants and then rescued by the tank. And when the Doctor first meets Estene and, and Brian's trying to kill her, you get this kind of uh, hover car chase that's like the fifth element or something, isn't it? So, <laughs> these are two sort of great things that would be very difficult to put on TV, um, <laughs> but really nice big action set pieces. Yeah, that, that sequence really stood out, actually, that hover car one in particular. I remember reading it and thinking, I would love to see this as a film. Can't quite imagine it on, on TV, Doctor yeah. Who, but it is a, it's a very visual sequence. And it, it, you know, I think it comes across better there than it would in any other medium, because like you say, you couldn't really do it on, mm-hmm. on TV. And certainly in a big Finnish audio, you know, some sound effects and people shouting isn't quite <laughs> the same. So I, I really enjoyed that and how it was written. No, I thought, okay... Um, Steve Cole just wrote this brilliantly because you could see everything happening. I mean, to me, it felt like a target book retelling of a story you've never seen, but everything was so... It was written really simply, but so brilliantly that you could follow the story and see it all perfectly as if it as if you had seen it on TV. I was really impressed with his prose in this one. And Brian Chasen was just this implacable uh, killer, isn't he? Just... Um... Uh, just he's, he, I think he's a brilliant ca- um, idea for a character because he's so just kind of uh, just suave the way he talks. Everything's really deadpan, mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> he's he's quite funny and everything. But uh, just the little bits now and again just remind you that he is an assassin. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, to begin with. Obviously, it's um, he's, he's quite a kind of uh, quite a kind of scary character coming at them like the Terminator or something, and uh, just just keeps coming. Yeah. I love the way he's so slippery and you can't quite work out if you can trust him at all all the way through. You never quite know what his motivation is for being involved in this. And I'm sure this is something we will find out in the next book maybe, but you just wonder why he's doing this all the way through. I was just questioning, well, what's what's in this for him? Why, what's going on here? Yeah, I, I definitely liked the ambiguity in how he was written in this one. You know, again, trusting it to the audio, which was released after this but set before before this in, in that he's a much more clear-cut character because obviously it's before he's been sent back into the dark times he's very much just there in his role as a hired assassin which is obviously why the doctor's directly up against him but then to have him in this context like you say he, he comes in and he's you just don't quite know what he wants or what he's doing but not in a way where it feels like underwritten in a way where it feels like they are holding something back so I think his role in the next one is going to be really significant. Just a total survivor, isn't he? Because he's been um, he's taken to the dark times where he doesn't know anybody or anything. Like his own species probably haven't evolved yet. Because even the time lords haven't haven't evolved yet at um, at this stage. Um, and has just immediately found his niche as an assassin. <laughs> uh, he's working for this uh, Charles Scal. Um, who's uh, he wants to get his hands on the the life shroud that that Fallofax has tried to invent that will protect people from the judgment of the Keturah. Um, um, and then it's through him just totally unexpectedly shooting Estene, uh when she's not wearing the life shroud, but we find out that she is just has some natural immunity to the judgment of the Keturah. Uh, I thought all that stuff was interesting about quite how their judgment works, um, because it does seem like just kind of godlike magic or something. Um, but then it does seem like it's some kind of intelligent virus or something that will sort of rewrite the DNA of these creatures. Um, and if it is a virus, then there would be people, you know, presumably who are just naturally immune to it. So that was uh, 
that was an interesting side of it. Because uh, at one point they they described the Keturah bringing death to the universe as a pandemic, um, which sort of obviously has uh, added resonance <laughs> now, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, doesn't it just? Mm. Yeah, I mean, especially um, we're to be thinking about that today as we're entering into a, a second lockdown in the UK. Um. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's and I thought um, the other thing Steve Cole does really well is he's bring out the 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 tragedy of all these really ancient races who've um, you know in in many cases like they've they've reached this level of just like kind of peaceful life of uh you know whether there's no death and no accidents and uh, uh, that that just it all just disappears immediately um as the couture arrive uh we've got our guest reading as well uh from jeff goddard better known on twitter as the brilliant city of jeff um so this describes the point where the couture arrive on andalia um, and the doctor faces them the doctor held very still I wondered all my life if I'd ever meet you, the bringers of death. Death is our treasure, our blood, our doctrine. Just as the legends say, the doctor felt physically sick standing so close to the creature. He could feel her will pushing into his mind, shifting his cells like beads on an abacus, but did his best to keep the pain from his face. You killed everyone here? The Andalians are indolent. They have little to contribute to the greater universe. Judgment has been passed. You killed everyone? Life will still endure, but in a pattern of our choosing. The doctor looked around beneath a sky that writhed with shadows. He saw a single Andalian child crawl from the sprawl of bodies. It peered around, mindless of the devastation, then scooped dead flies from the ground and ate hungrily before running away. From this day, the Andalian lifespan endures a single lunar orbit. The Keturu announced. Born, feed, reproduce, die. A span of what? Eight, seventy, eighty days? Heartbroken, the doctor shook his head. The Andalians have endured for millions of years, and you've left them barely more than mayflies. The living time of Andalia's flora and fauna has been adjusted also to help support this new life cycle. Adjusted, the doctor sneered, curtailed, ended. Why? One day this world will be of strategic value. If one in war, the death would be worse. This is our gift. The doctor shook his head. It's like trying to fix a broken watch with a sledgehammer. Our hearts beat to the Keturu design. These people have a whole civilization, a history, a culture. Who are you to sweep all that life away? Who are you to save it? She countered softly. Who here on Andalia chose when the existence of the fly was ended, the superior form of life? A plague of locusts isn't superior to a field of wheat because it destroys it. There are among so many dead. The Keturu's cold, burning eyes upon him, the doctor felt horribly exposed, but refused to let it show. Prove your superiority. Reverse the process. I mean, if you're using some kind of airborne DNA-altering retrovirus, a chill voice sounded in his ear. Be silent. Whoa. The doctor started, spun around. Another of the Keturu had drawn up behind him. This one was bigger, squatter, wearing velvet garments adorned with complex patterns that seemed to shift as he tried to take them in. While the first Keturu had regarded him with a hunter's cold indifference, the doctor sensed an appetite in this one. He held very, very still. As the creature's damp eyes took him in and grey fingers marbled silver like a slug's trail, hovered at his temple. Do not seek to explain our mysteries with your own notions of science, the Keturu purred. You are from times to come. You are not part of our design. I'm a time lord, the doctor smiled. So-called design doesn't even come close to a bloke who walks in eternity. 
You can't touch me. Thank you very much to Jeff uh, for that brilliant reading. Um, and Jeff will be appearing on a future episode of the podcast talking about another part of Time Lord Victorious. Um, the Doctor's solution, I thought, to, to the Keturah um, was... It's obviously kind of really extreme, the, the fact that he wants to stop death in the universe. But to begin with, it does just seem like the, what the Doctor would do. There's this aggressive alien race who are visiting all these planets and the idea of turning their own technology against them is, is like just proper um, a proper doctor plan so it's only as it gets deeper into it you realise the extreme nature of it isn't it that he's, he's going to you know, change the whole course of the universe forever yeah I found that really interesting particularly um, the examples that he gave of the places that he would save so where he said oh I could save Pergonon and Asinta which of course were mentioned in school reunion and this was the argument that he had with um, where Sarah Jane stopped him and said everything has its time and everything has to die and he's obviously forgotten that lesson from, from his oldest friend yeah I mean I suppose that's again sort of playing on those ideas we see a lot in the Russell Davies era of Doctor Who of the Doctor being not good when he's without a human companion and here obviously you know that's, that's played out in the waters of Mars and here even more um, the repercussions of that as you say him ignoring that thing which he has you know been told by his friends in the past and it's in even the second story isn't it of, um, of the ninth Doctor's era the, the end of the world um, with Cassandra it's uh, everything has its time and everything dies um, yeah I hadn't thought about that side of it but that's, um, that's a really good point I'm going to say again it goes back to him forgetting the lessons that he's learnt because he's very full of himself and he wants to change history to suit himself. He thinks it's for the better, but um, he's absolutely completely flawed at this point. But he can't see it. It's going to take someone else, probably himself, as we've seen at the <laughs> end, to, to teach him how to be the Doctor again. Yeah, I mean, as you say, that, that ending kind of you know cements how he's gone too far you know to quote mm-hmm. a line from Wars of Mars and um, you know there's that old, old sort of joke about oh if, if you do something as long as your future self doesn't turn up to stop you it can't be that bad I'm not sure what it means if your two past selves turn up to stop <laughs> you but um. yeah and I think I think coming off the back of, of the, the sort of the Time Lord Victorious little bit at the end of, of the Waters of Mars but then it's it's he's sort of defeated by death um, because the character I forget, just momentarily forgot her name um, Adelaide Adelaide Brooke. yeah shoots herself doesn't she um, and it's like well I can if I can defeat death then <laughs> that kind of solves that little problem with me being the time Lord victorious um, and and those last sort of few pages where he. Um, he puts the Time Lord robes and collar on, um, which uh, is, it, it's, I think it's on the cover of the next book or something, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it was one of the, the images that launched the whole Time Lord Victorious thing. Um, and he, he, the, the text says something like, he dressed for the occasion. Uh, <laughs> kind of really brings you back to the TV movie. And, and the, obviously the master is, you know, I, I always dress for the occasion sort of thing. <laughs> it kind of points him to go into the dark side of it, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, very much so. And I, there's the whole sequence, isn't there, where he says, "Oh no, um, fire is not is not the the way to execute this. Yeah, um, it's got to be something a bit more neutral." And then by the end, he's definitely <laughs> fire. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want to be called the admiral. Even if he charges his fleet of shit. Uh, he doesn't want to use the command fire. He wants to say go. And then uh, there's, there's something else as well, isn't there? And by the end of it, he's just he's just gone totally on board with it all yeah both of those word play sort of things I, I wrote about in my review the idea that he's sort of he's playing with language to make it justify himself which is a very you know we that's it's what politicians do you know we, we see it all the time in our lives where people play with words to make things sound less negative and you know I, I studied English language at a level and all that sort of stuff about connotations is kind of what comes through that and if anything, that's what makes it more interesting when at the end he actually abandons that pretense of, oh, I'm not an admiral and oh, I'm not going to, it's not like I'm shooting a gun and just goes, no, to hell with it, you know, 
I am what I am sort of thing. Yeah, because you see, it's interesting that it's his past selves as well that have come to stop him because from his point of view, he said, well, I know more than them because I'm older than them. I've, um, you know, I've had more experience. <laughs> so, uh, so what do they know? Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic ending to the book, isn't it? That the uh, the eighth Doctor arrives in a in a Dalek saucer <laughs> um, and says, "We've come to stop you." And then the um, the ninth Doctor arrives. Uh, I think it's a coffin ship. It says, which is is full of the great vampires. Uh, yeah. So and, it, and again, it's sort of it's a nice. It makes their like positions clear from obviously the eighth Doctor is coming off the back of you know the next audio drama to be released and the. The Ninth Doctor coming from the DWM comic strips, which obviously have introduced the, the vampires back into his life. Um, so I, I like that it's you know it's very clear what that it's it's the pieces coming together, you know, from this book and those two separate strands into the start of the next novel. Yeah, because there's there's two more big finish Eighth Doctor ones still to come, isn't there? There's the um, Enemy of My Enemy. And mutually assured destruction I think it is yeah that's that's the one yeah so it's, it'll be interesting to see where how he gets from where where he is now to the point where he's allied himself with the Daleks to uh... my, yeah it's interesting because my, my understanding of it from what I've read is that the third one mutually assured destruction actually comes after the next book so oh, I think wow. it's so that might be the aftermath of his relationship with the Daleks after they kind of and no longer, you know, serving the same purpose or whatever. So um, I think I'm, I'm right in that. So obviously the next one will be he joins the side of the Daleks by the end of it, and then one after that will be what do we do now sort of thing, yeah. I guess. <laughs> ah, right, interesting. Yeah, whereas I guess based on how the DWM comic strip's going, I guess we don't really get to see what happens to the Ninth Doctor after the book, but I guess that's his story sort of will be resolved in there. And same for the, the Tenth Doctor, although I think... I can't remember if Echo's ex- Extinction now is meant to be after the book or not, the, the vinyl release that's happening that's got 10 and 8. But... Yeah, because that's out in early December, isn't it? And it's the 8th Doctor and the 10th Doctor, but they're not in the same... It's like two parts no. of the same story, but they don't meet, I think, isn't it? They're yeah. on um, opposite sides of the disc. Uh, so that would yeah. be, uh, be an interesting one. Yeah. And there's also that the BBC audio release as well with um, Jacob Dudman. I think that's 10th Doctor 1. And again, I think that might be after the book. So it's interesting because obviously the next book is going to be like the big sort of centrepiece of it and kind of in a way like the climax. And yet there's quite a few drips and drabs of bit that stuff that's set after that. So it'll be interesting to see how, once you've read that book, whether that stuff still feels as interesting when it's no longer sort of leading towards a big conclusion, but kind of precipitating afterwards yeah logically you'd think that would be the conclusion because uh, it would be the battle between the the two previous doctors and the tenth doctor mm. um, I guess that is part of the thing that they're doing where stuff you know that's that is the, the climax but then there's other stuff that's kind of just around it and using the same characters and worlds but it'd be interesting to see how how sort of compelling these things already those are when you've had kind of the big event kind of happen mm. I guess there's going to be a, just a huge aftermath, isn't there? So it's going to be interesting to maybe explore all of that. Yeah, I suppose that is nice in some regard, but quite often, you know, you don't really see the aftermath of the Doctor Who's, you know, you know, a big, a big event happens and then they move on. And this actually is giving, you know, a couple of places where we see the aftermath of the different characters. I guess you don't want it to be that predictable either that the eighth and ninth doctors are just going to kind of come along and uh, resolve the situation in the next book. Um, you know, it's that's the way you know, we're maybe being led to believe it's going to go, but uh, I guess anything can happen from here. We want some twists and turns and unexpected uh, things still to come along because it's all been quite sort of tightly um, kept under wraps as well, hasn't it really, other than knowing who's in the stories. We don't know that much about yeah. them yet. Um, and we've got the Dalek cartoon series coming up as well, which uh, I don't think it's got yeah. any Doctors in it, has it? No, it's just yeah, uh, think... Daleks and Mechanoids and fan-pleasing yeah, some... stuff. <laughs> I was about to say, da- Daleks, Mechanoids and, and one robot or something, because obviously they're, they're deli- clearly trying to avoid animating humans for that, yeah. <laughs> um, which is, is sensible. Um, 
But that looks up brilliant yeah. animated though. It's um, it's such a great idea to give them the give them the spin off like Power of the Daleks and everything. I think it looks fantastic in that. Yeah. And and the style of animation and previews for this, it's like it's very it's very video game, but in a way that when I see it, I think, wow, I wish I could have a Dalek video game. To be honest, um, you know, um, with you know thousands and hundreds of Daleks, you know, flooding through the sky, <laughs> you know, it's quite. And there is a certain visual appeal to that. It'd be interesting to see how the stories actually are, but I think almost regardless of the quality of the stories, there's going to be a lot of sitting and you know watching Daleks kill things and things explode and going, oh ah, you know that's pretty fun to watch. <laughs> That's right, it's only been 54 years in the making. So. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose with, with Star Wars and, and Star Trek now, we've got some kind of animated series coming out, haven't they? You know, it sort of makes sense for, for Doctor to explore that as well. Yeah, I think this is certainly be on a, a, a different sort of scale in terms of you know release and production story time, but I think it's still nice that this does exist and they found a way you know, to make it on you know, what money they have for stuff like this. They're probably um, easy to make during lockdown than the live-action TV series as well. So, um, yeah, hopefully it'll spawn some more animated stuff. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see Doctor Who animation. I think, I think you know, having seen the animated, you know, reconstruction releases and things like Sharda, you know, it just shows how well Doctor Who works in that medium, especially when it's in a sort of, like, a colourful mood. Like, I know Macroterra was in black and white, and yet it works so well in colour because of the sort of 60s psychedelia of the story. And, you know, Sharda as well, obviously, animated in, in colour because it's is colour. And it, it, they just, it feels like those characters just suit that style of animation. And, yeah, it was, I'm always happy for more Doctor Who animation. Yeah, I went from being really dubious about the colour um, things when I first heard about them to I always watch them first now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was exactly the same. I mean, certainly when, obviously, they did a colour one of Power of the Daleks, which BBC America did because they didn't want to broadcast it in colour. I, I never bothered with that personally. And I'm from what I heard, it wasn't the same quality as the releases that came afterwards where the colour was part of the plan from the start. But I think, you know, Macro Terror, like I said, really suits colour. I think the Faceless Ones is as kind of like a thriller kind of story. You know, this contemporary thriller that also really suits colour and so by the time Fury from the Deep came out I'm not sure if I can come up with an argument that says it suits colour and yet at the same time I was more than happy to watch it in colour because I knew by that point how good these things were yeah I have to admit I haven't watched the black and white versions of the last three <laughs> at no, all no I'm exactly the same but bringing it back to the book the I thought the the Kutura themselves are like a pretty wild kind of looking race aren't they they they're kind of like slither about on tentacles but then they're also like humanoid apart from that and I think it's the first time um, like not in the little um, the little short story that, that came with the newsletter or in Lesser Evils they get a description of their face um, mm. which makes them seem um, a bit like death as well they've got these sort of skeletal sort of faces as well um, which supposed ties in also with the the Brothers Grimm Story that we um, that we've got in the in the interludes, the the fact that, um, that death's a character in that as well. Um, yeah, they're pretty kind of horrific. Um, but then um, Steve Cole managed to make you feel a bit of pity for them at the end as well, doesn't he? Which I thought was uh, like took some doing given everything we've seen them do <laughs> so far. Yeah, I mean the stuff you're saying about the appearance, like yeah, the the way it's sort of it's tentacly but then kind of like crystalline tentacles like you know partly from how it's described and from the images used on the covers and stuff and i think that's interesting because it's not something i've really seen before you know it's, it's nice that they put some thought into making it less sort of generic and in terms of the the sort of clothed appearance and how it sort of resembles the grim reaper i found that really interesting and it's sort of Obviously, we're linking it to that Brothers Grimm stuff from the interludes, but it's also something that keeps coming up from interludes about, you know, the Eighth Doctor is saying that the way Brian Viewed's dressed in that looks a bit like death, and, and then when Rose wakes up and sees the Ninth Doctor at the foot of her bed, she's thinking for a second he looks a bit like death, so it's obviously, you know, the preoccupation with death is there a lot and constantly being linked to appearance and these sort of dark, shady figures. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wondered if it were if we're going to sort of have it revealed that the um, that their image sort of resonates through time and because they've been such a huge force that no 
it's sort of embedded in every race that ever comes sort of after it that this is this is your image of death in one way or another and each each race would then sort of create their own sort of variation of it based mm. on how they appear but the basic form is they brought death to the universe and off we go yeah i i, I like that because it's sort of, it sort of makes sense because obviously we can look at it as a book and go oh well this is you know, inspired by our version of death we have in our culture and how we perceive Grim Reaper, but obviously from a sort of in-universe sense, it makes sense that, yeah, it would actually be the Katuru there that's influenced, you know, why people perceive death and think of death as being in a certain way. It's like the the demons, isn't it, or, or the beast from um, the, the David Tennant one that, uh, you know, sort of influenced the idea of the devil and the, the, the kind of the horned creatures as well uh, a lot of that sort of stuff in Doctor Who isn't there that uh, uh, aliens are yeah that, that a lot of ideas of gods and, and mythology come from uh, come from aliens as well yeah so what did you both think of the setting in the dark time because this is somewhere that Doctor Who's mentioned a lot but it's never been back to go and explore this so it how did you think it that came across I, th- I thought it was interesting sort of showing, obviously you've got all these sort of planets that are quite prosperous because of immortality, whereas usually, you know, the, the allusions to the dark times in the TV series, but when it's talking about the Ragnos or the, the great vampires, it's, you know, because of what those creatures are, you, you're thinking of the dark times as like a very negative, you know, thing, but it's going to be full of, you know, all these um, dangerous creatures, whereas obviously this is a, a different view of that. And I guess it's the difference between... Um, assuming that the dark times means dark, like, um, you know, bad, as opposed to what it probably actually, how it's taken here, which is like the equivalent of the dark ages in human history, where it just means less is known about it. So it's dark in terms of our knowledge. So, yeah, it's a a different view to what stuff like, and that, there's that Doctor Who annual thing recently, which sort of recapped all those monsters that hang about in the dark times and, again, made it sound quite sinister. But here it's kind of... It's, it's normal life, only more prosperous because people don't die. And obviously it's going to, it's reaching that point during this where people are starting to die. And yeah. I think I always assumed it was something to do with the Time Lords and Gallifrey when you hear it mentioned. Is it the Five Doctors the first time they talk about the Dark Times? Yeah, I, I think, think they, so, they, isn't they it? Yeah. I, I don't know if there's like a distinction there because they talk about the dark times of, of Gallifrey and whether that's the same as the dark times on like a universal scale because there it's it's obviously post Time Lords and once Rassilon's in control and it's this sort of you know Hunger Games-esque thing in the death zone <laughs> but um, whether that's because again that isn't something that I think the Doctor Who annual bit recently that was you know a Time Lord Victorious Titan thing I don't think it alluded to that so I don't know if that's the same dark times to confuse things <laughs> further, but I think it's an interesting point to raise still. Yeah, I think I think I'd I'd assumed it was like the early days of the Time Lords when they were still um, you know didn't have the non-intervention policy and they were uh, like messing around like mm-hmm. the race from Underworld and giving them nuclear weapons when they you know like they were sort of barely out of the Stone Age and that type of thing. Um, but yeah, I guess this. this it could still be the, the Time Lords that called this the Dark Times, but it's because it's before they rose to prominence, maybe. So that's why yeah, we think I, they were I, dark. Yeah, yeah. I think the Doctor Who magazine comics, um, Monstrous Beauty, kind of confirms that at this point, the Time Lords are still Gallifreyans who haven't, you know, come across regeneration and, and started time travel yet. Um, I mean, I think there's a few references to that in in the book as well. Actually, there's, there's bits where the Katuru threatens the Doctor to, you know, go and wipe out the Gallifreyans before they be- rise to prominence. So yeah, yeah. So they're they're around, but not. Uh, well, I guess as we now know, they haven't um, used the Timeless Child to develop regeneration <laughs> and, and yes. thereby, uh, time travel. Yeah, I just found it really interesting because it's so uncharted territory and everything is new and it feels like there's lots of things you can play with in this time that 
sort of very different to normal Doctor Who continuity where you're sort of tied because something happened, the Draconian Wars happened or whatever. Um, and here, it just feels like like the Doctor, you can come in and do anything here and there's whole new sort of civilizations to explore and planets that have long since gone. Yeah. It, it does feel like a nice sort of world-building thing because, like, in the sense that the Doctor Who universe isn't necessarily, like, a very cohesive universe always in the same way that something like Star Wars is because there are so many different disparate elements and different sort of contradictions and, and stuff. Whereas the Dark Times, you know, it's, it's been alluded to in a limited amount of Doctor Who stories. Obviously, we're now getting this sort of Blu-ray release that brings those together. I can't remember, it's the path to the Dark Times or the road to the Dark, or, or the road to Time Lord Victorious or something. But... Um, it kind of that when I saw you know the titles that were included, like sort of reinforced how little this has been referred to enough that you can make all the references to it fit together without causing sort of contradictions. Just makes it a nice sort of almost set aside area for these Time Lord Victorious stories to play in without having to worry about too many other elements of Doctor Who continuity. Yeah, like you say, it's not it's not like a cohesive thing that's been been planned at any point, is it? It's just. Uh, when somebody invents a new race of aliens, it sounds cool if they say they're from the dawn of time. <laughs> um, like Fenric, I think yeah, the Curse of Fenric is one of the stories on the Blu-ray set, isn't it? Um, mm, that's right, yeah, evil from the dawn of time. Yeah, yeah. which it's interesting because a lot of those ones on the Blu-ray set are sort of... Obviously there's stuff like State of Decay, and which is going to tie in much more because of the presence of vampires, whereas obviously some of the things on the Blu-ray set, like... You know, there's a reference to the Ragnos in the Doctor Who annual bit, but I don't think they're going to come into play much. So having the Runaway Bride on there is kind of also... It's basically just a set, not necessarily of stuff you need to have seen to understand Time Lord Victorious, but more just what is relevant. And also, I think, as again, somebody pointed out on Twitter, stuff that has already been released on collection sets so has already be, <laughs> been remastered as Blu-ray, which is quite quite impressive actually but just sort of by luck all of these things but reference for dark times are already in blu-ray quality but yeah isn't it <laughs> yeah there's nothing to tempt you just to to buy it because it's the first time on blu-ray is there <laughs> yeah no it's <laughs> they missed the, a the trick only... there <laughs> yeah but i guess the blu-ray Can sets you... have, they're pretty much all sold out haven't they so if uh i guess if uh, we're buying any more re-releases like they did with um series Season twelve and season fourteen, it might might be the only opportunity to uh, to get some of these on uh, on Blu-ray. That's a good point. Yeah, for and it is a nice little collection of stories. You know, if if I hadn't been collecting the collection sets, but I saw you know for that price, I could get you know Curse of Fenric and all these other little things like that. I I am interested with um, obviously it's got Planet of the Daleks on there, and whether that is the one with the like additional special effects or not and whether because the suggestion seems to be that these are just sort of almost vanilla releases of the story without any of the sort of special features on the Blu-ray collection set so in that case I'm curious about which version it is available but yeah yeah because um, I think I mentioned this on the um, He Kills Me, He Kills Me Not podcast um, but the so James Goss on Twitter say that Planet of the Daleks is on there because it leads into one of the episodes of the Daleks animation um, so if it's the the frozen Dalek army that that got sort of frozen in the uh, the ice cano, um, are they going to animate the Lewis Marks uh, <laughs> 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 um, Daleks yeah. that they used to represent that army? Because um, the special edition, they they replaced them with the normal shaped Daleks. I think didn't they? He had that option. Yeah, yeah. The, this it has, and it's sort of it's rather than. It's it's a lot of Daleks basically, and it's sort of made to look right and all animated. So yeah. So yeah, if it's um, if that's um, designed to to lead into the, the Daleks animation, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether we get some uh, some slightly oddly shaped ones. <laughs> yeah, if they resurrect that army, it'd be interesting. I mean, the the people behind the Daleks animation seem to be at the sort of right level of, of nerdery where yeah. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if we did get a few weird shaped Daleks as sort of references to those kind of stories and those use of toys and things. 
it's it's fun reading the Doctor Who magazine interviews about the Daleks. I've 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 never seen that many people that excited about mechanoids. You know, yeah. it's, it's um, <laughs> but that is could, Doctor Who mm-hmm. fandom for you, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, you could tell you don't live in this house. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> One thing I would say is, like, in terms of the pacing of it, I think it takes a while to pick up pace, but, like, obviously it's quite a short book anyway, so it's kind of... And I, th- I think the it's sort of the pacing of it is kind of inherent to its structure rather than a flaw, because it's sort of... It's working towards this sort of massive cliffhanger. Um, so it's it starts slow but really picks up as it goes on. And at the start... I was reading it um, like sort of one or two chapters in a sitting, you know, trying to fit it in around other work and sleep and stuff like that. Um, But as it reached um, sort of the third act, I absolutely like devoured it basically. Like, you know, it's a short book. So if I wanted to, I could have sat and read it in a day, but I I didn't. But having, despite having tried to sort of, you know, eke it out as one, two chapters, once I got to, I think around sort of, sort of after interlude three i then basically just read it all in one sitting and um i think that shows something about how sort of it's it's a very quick book Mm -hmm. and it really drags you along with it um so yeah yeah i guess he's got to do a little bit of the world building at the start hasn't it because it's it's introducing the, the the dark times and new planets and new characters and things um yeah, yeah it's um probably helps that you they didn't need to be a resolution <laughs> so it's uh, you can just build and build and build as the uh, as the story goes on yeah there's there's no slower chapters at the end trying to wrap yeah. up it just it hits the climax <laughs> and it's done um and yeah it, it was nice i think the pro style like it's kind of like a lot of the sort of bbc new series adventures that we've had is it's it's not the most um exciting thing but it's 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 nice easy sort of reading and i think that's it's good that it's accessible to, I think, much younger readers as well, I would imagine. And, you know, for me, it's just I'm reading stuff for uni all day. And so this makes quite a nice change of pace, to be honest. <laughs> and, um, and then I think you do get I think the opening pro prologue actually has some really nice sort of use of prose and, and some of the bits in the preludes as well. So it's nice, not the preludes, but the interludes as well. And so I think it's nice for those are there to sort of balance the sort of more functional and sometimes a bit drier prose that, you know, we're used to from these sort of shorter new series Doctor Who books. Yeah, I thought some really lovely turns of phrase. There's, there's, I think when the TARDIS dematerialises and it says something like um, the TARDIS dips its toe into eternity or something like that. Um, I thought <laughs> that some really, lovely. really nice little, um, little turns of phrase in there. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure discussing the book with you. And I will put a link in the show notes to where uh, we can find you on Twitter and where we can find your Time Lord Victorious Blogbrin, which um, I heartily recommend. Cheers. Thank you very much for listening at home, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Next time on the Trap One Podcast. How do you get rid of Ace? How does Ace leave the Doctor in, in, the, in the context of this one story? Doctor Who comic supremo Scott Gray drops in to discuss the classic 7th and 8th Doctor strips from the Doctor Who magazine.